in the women's gender equality context, whether we're, you know, a man, a woman, whatever our race, uh, sexual identity is, we need to all have a fair shot at reaching our human potential. That was kind of just getting in touch with what drives me and making sure that that's what I prioritize in my work. Diversity of ideas is harder than it looks. Welcome to Innovation for All, conversations on the social impact of innovation with your host, Shana Alkvist. Welcome to Innovation for All. I'm your host, Shana Alkvist. Before we get to today's episode, a quick programming note. So as of this week, we are moving to a bi-weekly release schedule. In all honesty, we always meant to start at that pace and I accidentally forgot to do so. So while it's embarrassing to walk it back, it's a much more realistic approach. It's gonna allow us to continue to find thought-provoking guests to discuss topics that you haven't heard a hundred times before. And that brings us to today's episode. So this week, I spoke with Sally Hubbard, antitrust expert at the Capital Forum. Sally focuses on the monopolization of the tech giants. Are Google, Apple, Facebook, Amazon, are they really monopolies? And if so, what's the big deal? First of all, this conversation is awesome. We really get into the weeds on why tech monopolies should be considered more dangerous than they actually are. And it's interesting. So traditionally, the main risk of a monopoly is that they are gonna corner the market and then raise their prices once they drive everybody else out of business. But that model, that fear, doesn't really apply to a Google or a Facebook whose services are free. (laughs) But we discuss why they're dangerous nonetheless. We also get into the weeds on what it would look like to break up the tech giants. So with the internet knowing no physical boundaries, it's not like you'd have Google North and Google South competing for your search business. So what would you do? Sally describes the most practical options. And last but not least, if you enjoyed today's episode, I hope you'll send it to a friend. It's a great way to show how very cool and smart you are. Trust me. Enjoy. Sally Hubbard, welcome to the podcast. Thank you so much for having me. I'm happy to be here. So in the modern era, we have these big tech giants. We've got Googles, we've got Facebooks, we've got Amazon. Should we think about those tech companies as monopolies? I do think we should think of those companies as monopolies because at this point, they each kind of have carved out their own markets and they have pretty durable market power at this point. I mean, we really haven't seen another major social network that's taken on Facebook, at least for the the core group of users that use Facebook. Google has something like 80 to 90% worldwide market share of search. And Amazon now accounts for one out of every $2 spent online. And for those millions of Amazon Prime members, they will keep ordering from Amazon even if the price goes up. And that's an indicator of there being monopoly power. Wow. So those numbers are absurd. Google, you said it was 80 to 90%? Yeah, a worldwide market share of search. And then it also has comparable share of the Android operating system worldwide. Wow. And you said Amazon, one out of every $2. Okay. I could see how those are are pretty big, big numbers. I mean, I guess this is getting back to sort of a fundamental question about whether monopolies are good or bad, but in a capitalistic society, isn't sort of the goal to 
win the market? Well, in a capitalistic society, the goal is that those innovators and entrepreneurs that have the best product or service, the greatest innovation, have a chance of reaping the rewards of that innovation. It is the reward of the capitalistic gain that you get from putting your best forward that is what, you know, has made until now America one of the most entrepreneurial, innovative countries in the world. Now, if that goes away, that also harms basically the incentives that we take for granted in a capitalist society, right? If you know that you might have the best product or service, but a tech giant can bury you on, you know, page four of their search results or can leverage their monopoly power in one market to just take over your market, regardless of whether they have the best product, that I think is very dangerous and very much runs against capitalism. Yeah. So I'd love to unpack this. So first, can you tell me a little bit more about why we should think of these as as monopolies? So you mentioned that Google has such high market share in the search industry, but you do have competitors. You've got Bing, you've got um, Ask.com. Should we think of those as as legitimate competitors? So under the uh, U.S. antitrust laws, you're considered a monopoly if you have the power to control prices or or exclude competitors. Also under the law, it's basically if you have 70% market share or higher, legally considered a monopoly. So... Google is far beyond that threshold. You know, the other important thing to note, though, is that under the antitrust laws, it's not actually illegal to be a monopoly. It is illegal to monopolize. So in order to be breaking the law, you need to both have monopoly power and be doing some sort of exclusionary conduct. That's what makes it monopolization. But yeah, Google, there's not really any question about whether Google search is a monopoly. It, it really is straight up a monopoly. The fact that there's a couple of competitors with a tiny amount of market share doesn't mean it's not a monopoly. And I think you said the first piece there of that definition had something to do with pricing. How do we think about that when, for instance, Google search is a free service? Well, that's been a big problem. And one of the reasons why we've seen really very, very little, if, if any, antitrust enforcement against these tech platforms in a world in which you're paying with your data instead of paying with money, antitrust has really been struggling with how to address that. So this is why a lot of this conduct and monopolization has flown under the radar in, you know, where these products are purportedly free, although we know they're not really free. So it's interesting. So it's almost like we're using laws that were written for a different era of business. Yeah. I mean, the antitrust laws were passed in The Sherman Act, which is the main one involving monopolies, was passed in 1890. Are you saying that some things have changed on the business side since 1890? (laughs) You know, however, I I actually keep saying, I've said this before, that actually for these types of companies, they were passed in the face of huge, powerful companies like Standard Oil. So yes, it wasn't passed for the digital age, but it was passed for the purpose of dealing with very powerful companies. And it sounds like as a course correction to something that had gone unchecked. Right. I'd love to think about, so in this space where we're not paying for these services, and and like you said, that maybe means that the laws that are supposed to protect us from them aren't quite a good fit. How do we think about the disadvantages of these monopolies? So sort of who is it hurting if we're not paying for these services and, and maybe being concerned about having those prices increased? Sure. And I'm going to go back to one thing is that This idea that we only care about prices is really a modern take on antitrust law. It's really the last 
30 years um, that started with the Chicago School of Economics kind of taking over antitrust doctrine and convincing the courts that all that really mattered was prices and efficiencies. If you look at the actual Sherman Act passed in 1890, there's absolutely no mention of prices. So for those of us who aren't familiar with 1890s uh, legislative agendas, can you walk us through what the, the Sherman Act might include? So the most important clause of the Sherman Act says that every person who shall monopolize or attempt to monopolize or combine or conspire with any other person or persons to monopolize any part of the trade or commerce among the several states or with foreign nations shall be deemed guilty of a felony. So it's just talking about conspiring to restrain trade. And then a very important part of the legislative history is at the passage of the law, Senator Sherman said, if we will not endure a king as a political power, we should not endure a king over the production, transportation, and sale of any of the necessities of life. Succumbing to a to concentrated power, because economic power is political power in a capitalistic society. So th that's what the roots of antitrust law are, and those are still applicable today. The problem has been more the Chicago School of Economics that has convinced the courts that if there's not a price or an output of put effect, that you can't actually find a company guilty of monopolization. Okay, so it sounds like originally the Sherman Act's goal was to prevent sort of the consolidation of power and having America run by being heavily influenced by this concentrated power, but that in maybe the 80s, that shifted over to being more focused on pricing. Yes. Okay, and so I could see how that wouldn't fit for the internet era. <laughs> <laughs> exactly. So can you walk me through some of the, what are the downsides? Like, so what, that these are maybe monopolies, everything seems to be working just fine. Okay, well, it's helpful to try and talk about particular companies. Sure. Um, the downsides are different for different companies. Is there a bigger company you want to talk about first? So why don't we start with Amazon, thinking about the downsides of Amazon's monopoly. And I think that one might be the most explicit. So that's a good place to start. Yeah, so Amazon is having a lot of effects on competition that maybe the consumer doesn't see. But if you are also maybe an entrepreneur, if perhaps you work for a company that sells its products on the platform, you could be harmed by their practices. The thing that I've written a lot about is kind of the biases on the platform, you know, it's similar to Google search where you might think that if I search for a particular product on Amazon, I'm just going to get, you know, the most relevant product without understanding all the kind of levers that Amazon is pulling to prioritize its own products. And because it is becoming the infrastructure in which commerce is done online, it then has access to all of this data about other companies' sales. So if you're an entrepreneur and you want to create a product, say you're creating a product for eco product for children's lunchboxes, all right? <laughs> Where are you going to sell that product? Well, you're going to have to sell it on Amazon, given that you know prime customers are going to be your, the demographic that are most likely to buy your product. Maybe Whole Foods, but now Amazon owns Whole Foods. <laughs> There was, what, diapers.com, but Amazon bought that and pretty much killed it. So what are your choices? And then Amazon can really dictate the terms and conditions of when it's going to pay you, how much your fees are going to be, how much of a cut it's going to take from your sales. And then if it sees that your product is selling really well, because it has all the data, 
it can easily just cut you out of the equation and make it itself. And then because it controls the search results, it can put its product above yours in the search results. Its product can get all the ratings because it has its own ratings program. It can give prime advertising space all over its platform for that product. And then it has so much data on the consumer that it can actually much more efficiently target potential buyers of the product than you would be able to as a, just an entrepreneur without all the data that Amazon has. It sounds like on the front end, then it's it's that you as an entrepreneur are limited in your, in your choices. So it's like it's Amazon and not a lot of other choices. And then they... They dictate all those terms. You don't have a lot of flexibility. But then as a consequence, because they have access to all of your information in a much more nuanced way than the entrepreneur has access to data on their competition, it sounds like it puts them in in an unfair position to maybe take that market if they wanted to. Right. And the saying that I like to say that I think it makes it clear is that these tech platforms are controlling the arena in which the game is played and they're also playing the game. No one wants to be dependent on their competitor. But because Amazon is not just a platform, but it's also vertically integrating into selling products on the platform, everyone who sells on Amazon is effectively competing against Amazon and also dependent on Amazon. You know, that's not good for capitalism, right? No company wants to be dependent on the competitor. And that's what's happening in in e-commerce. I know later we're going to talk about ways that one could potentially reduce the concern about monopoly in these spaces. But before we get to that, I'd love to run through some of the other companies with the downside. So for Amazon, I think it makes sense sort of from a traditional monopoly framework of like their sellers and they have more information and they can compete better than you can. But what about something like Facebook where you're not selling physical goods in the same way? Like how is that a monopoly and how does that hurt people? Sure. So Facebook is the dominant social network with 2 billion monthly users. While there are some other social networks out there, they're really not substitutes. So that's how you determine whether something's a monopoly or not. Like, is there a substitute? Is there another choice for consumers? And sure, there's LinkedIn, but you're not going to go onto LinkedIn to see your grandmother's photos, right? There's a lot of these kind of upstart ones that the young people use um, and things like Snapchat. But again, that's really for a certain demographic. So for a whole class of customers, there's really not another substitute for Facebook. And I think we saw that when the whole Cambridge Analytica scandal broke. And a lot of people were very unhappy at how Facebook was allowing Russian um, disinformation agents to have access to per people's users' personal data. But people kept telling me, well, I'm using Instagram now only. And I'm like, well, guess what? Facebook owns Instagram. Facebook purchased Instagram. So... There's not choices. That means there's not restraints on companies like Facebook. I mean, a normal company in a competitive marketplace has to care. If it's going to treat its customers badly, its customers will go somewhere else. I see. So essentially, by not having an alternative, there's not really an incentive for them to to do their best job. Right. I mean, when users don't have choice, then there's no competitive discipline and there's no bargaining power for the users and also for publishers. So I've written a lot about the problems that Facebook is causing regarding fake news. The reason why I think that fake news is in part an antitrust problem is that basically because Facebook doesn't have competition, it can just prioritize its profits above all else without regard to the consequences because it doesn't have to worry about losing users. 
So what its algorithm does is it prioritizes what causes the most engagement. That makes perfect sense for its business model because it needs to keep users on the Facebook platform as long as possible so that it can collect as much data about the users and it can show them as many ads as possible. So that's its goal. And as a result, it's basically competing against every other media company online for those limited 24 hours in your day to get your eyeballs and get your attention. There is that aspect of the competition, but the incentive this creates for Facebook is just to try to keep you on its platform as long as possible by having its algorithm prioritizing what is most engaging. Well, unfortunately, we've learned that what is most engaging are things that make you angry and fearful. Mm. And, you know, a fake news article that says Hillary Clinton is running a child sex ring out of a pizza place is more engaging than a Pulitzer Prize winning well-researched article. There are other things the algorithm could be prioritizing. The algorithm could be prioritizing, hey, news that we verified is well-researched and comes from actual journalists to get priority in the news feed. But that would require it to change the way its algorithm works, which would hurt its profits. So one thing, my understanding was the Cambridge Analytica scandal wasn't about Russian bots, but it was a company misusing the data from Facebook against their terms of use and sort of went unpunished. But my understanding was that it didn't directly have anything to do with sort of the the Russian hacking of the election or fake news in any meaningful way. Well, Cambridge Analytica's whole purpose was to influence elections. That's fair. Fair enough. You're right. Everybody can, I'm sure, Google it. But essentially, it was to collect more nuanced personality data on people so that they could create ads that were that would resonate most with them. So yeah, fair enough. And I think then we get into the debate about what about the Russian hacking scandal was scary. Was it that it was an external state actor doing it or was it that it was really creative and innovative and scary tactics? So I was just talking to you about the problems I have with the algorithm and why I think competition would benefit. Competition in social networks would be optimal to kind of getting rid of the fake news problem because we could have maybe actually competition among algorithms or the way that the news is delivered to us, the way content is delivered to us. But this other point about the Cambridge Analytica scandal is another point I didn't really get to, which is, you know, there's a really tremendous privacy abuses happening, in my opinion, involving the way that Facebook is treating our data in a way that is not acceptable by any measure. And again, they're not constrained because people don't have a choice. I mean, people can just stop using Facebook altogether and just say, okay, sure, fine. I don't care about seeing pictures from my high school friends or whatever, my grandparents. But for those who want to connect socially, they really don't have an option. And um, I think that's competition on privacy measures would be another way that we could actually benefit people to have more than one player in the social media space. So let's hit the other big one. So Google, what does their monopoly look like and how does that hurt people? Okay, so we've got the search monopoly, the desktop search monopoly, and what went on to mobile search monopoly. And the problems there in terms of competition are that it's able to kind of pick the winners and the losers of the internet. So anyone who followed net neutrality should understand why this is a problem, right? And under net neutrality, we didn't want the broadband companies to be able to control what content we see just because they control the pipes, right? 
So the idea with net neutrality was that just because you own the pipes doesn't mean you can prioritize your content or people can pay to get in fast lanes. And we'd have companies like Comcast determining, you know, what we see online. And really, we have the same problem with search engine, considering that it's the portal to the internet. And it's used, like I said, by 80 to 90% of people worldwide. And so when Google decides it wants to enter a market that's kind of adjacent to its search market or is dependent on um, being discovered online, it can prioritize its own products and services and bury everybody else on page four of the search results, which is what happened in the Google shopping case that Europe find them uh, billions of dollars for doing. So again, it's everybody have a fair shot and not having... You know, if you're an entrepreneur, you want to have a fair shot at reaching people online and not having Google be able at any moment to just like stomp you out of existence. Wow. Well, so how do we think about how these issues intersect with more social justice issues? So I know you've talked a bit about how monopolization might impact minorities or women particularly hard. Right. So if you think about monopolies, you're thinking about concentrated power, right? Concentrated economic power which translates to concentrated political power. And one thing that we've seen, and there's been a lot of scholars who've written about this, is that this growing inequality, income inequality that we have, is related to this concentration in our economy. The fact that we now have two to three firms controlling the vast majority of our industries instead of, you know, 10 to 15 firms competing in an industry um, has led to really concentrated power, and it's led to a lot more share of the money going to basically the shareholders and the C-suite executives, whereas the workers are getting a smaller share. I mean, if it just makes sense, if you think about it, if you're a worker in an industry with like five, six, seven firms competing for your labor, you'll get paid more. It's just like supply and demand, right? When there's only a few dominant firms in each industry, they pay far less. And that's why we've, we've seen actually for the first time in history, gains and profits going up and wages still staying low. The workers just don't have the bargaining power. And looking at all that research about how the income inequality that's growing is related, is an effect of the concentration in our economy, I started to think, well, this has got to be affecting women even especially harder because we know that women make only a percentage of the male dollar, right? And of course, it's even less for women of color. So to the extent there's less wages to go around and all of the wealth is going to the shareholders and the C-suite executives, which are primarily white men, there's less money to be paid to workers and women are going to get a lower share of that money. So just in terms of wages and compensation, that's a huge problem. Is that something that you have had a chance to look at empirically yet or is that sort of a hypothesis? So other people have looked at, it's called monopsony power. It's basically buyer power. It's the opposite of a consumer. A lot of people have done studies about this and the effect on on wages. I would point you to Marshall Steinbaum at the Roosevelt Institute has done a lot of great work on this. And I just was looking to adding, taking that type of work and saying, well, we know women make less than men for every dollar. They're going to be hit especially hard by anything that affects wages, enriches the shareholders and the C-suite executives, which we know are largely white men. Mm, So essentially, we know that monopolies create disparity and inequality. And we know that 
women and minorities tend to be the people who are disadvantaged by those inequalities. They aren't, when there's inequality, it's not like women are getting extra money. <laughs> right. And if you just look at it, it's going to the C-suite executives. And we know the statistics on women in the C-suite are very poor and women investors also low. I wanted to challenge you on one piece in there about competition for labor. So if I was talking to somebody at Google in charge of hiring, they would not tell you that they were half-assing finding talent. My understanding is that these tech giants, sort of the only thing that's stopping them from hiring more great people is being able to win them from other companies or find them in the first place. Like they, they desperately want amazing talent. Do you disagree with that? Well, the tech companies, I think, have a particular challenge because there aren't enough workers skilled with the skills that they need. So I don't think we have the monopsony power as much for the tech companies, although there was a case a few years ago where they were all agreeing amongst each other to fix the wages and not they had no poaching agreements. There was a huge lawsuit against Silicon Valley employers that they had all entered in. They had all basically colluded with one another to agree not to try to poach each other's uh, employees so as to keep wages down. Yeah, that's not so good. <laughs> that article about gender inequality being made worse by monopolies wasn't focused particularly on tech. It was just focused on, you know, we have concentration. Although tech is getting the most notice right now, all of the sectors of our economy are highly concentrated because of decades of merger mania. So that's a widespread problem. You know, and another thing that was related to that that I wrote in that article was this was in the era of Me Too. We finally figured out or it's finally been unveiled how widespread uh, sexual harassment at work is. We women knew this, but for some reason, it's now finally seen the light. And if you think about if you have less firms in any sector, that really impairs worker mobility. So women's ability to get away from a hostile work environment is really impaired when there's less companies that you could go work for. And uh, after I wrote that article, I actually had two different women reach out to me saying that once they brought a sexual harassment complaint in their company, not only were they fired from their company, but they were blacklisted from their entire industry. And both of those women had only kind of two dominant firms in their industry. Oh my God, that's terrifying. Henry Ford once said, if I had asked people what they wanted, they would have said faster horses. Sounds like Ford hired a bad user researcher. PhD Insights is different. They help understand the attitudes and motivations that underlie what customers claim. And this is good for business. So if your company isn't adding attitudinal feedback to their data pipeline, they're missing half the story. Learn how PhD Insights can help your company with pricing, product strategy, and positioning by visiting phdinsights.com. That's phd-insights.com. I know we, we briefly hit on this before, but can you unpack a little bit more how one might think about fake news as an antitrust problem? And I know you've got a great um, Vox interview about this. Well, um, as I explained earlier, uh, one of the problems is that without any competition, then there's no competitive discipline to not use these algorithms that are prioritizing fake news. I mean, Facebook's algorithm will surface the fake news above legitimate news because it tends to be more salacious and engaging. And that is what serves Facebook's business model. I don't think Facebook actually has an incentive or really cares or uh, has a desire to 
surface fake news, but it certainly doesn't feel the competitive pressure to make changes to its algorithm that would reduce its profitability. I don't know if you've heard um, Scott Galloway. He's a professor at NYU who wrote a book called The Four. One time I was talking to him and he gave me a great quote, which he said, when a tech platform says something is not possible, that's Latin for it's not profitable. So as a result of not having really any competitors to discipline it, Facebook can just pursue its profits without caring that, you know, we're having all these horrible consequences on democracy caused by these algorithms that are prioritizing engagement and really polarizing people because they are only seeing what the algorithm has decided they will click on and be made angry and fearful and actually pushes them into even more extreme positions. I want to push back on this a little bit. I understand and I agree with the argument that if you don't have competitors, they don't really need to take these concerns as seriously as if they had a competitor who was. But I think following the election of Donald Trump has been reported on. A lot of people at Facebook don't like Trump. So I think it hit the company particularly hard that they might have been complacent in his rise to power. And as a consequence, I know they've, they've tried to move in the direction of identifying fake news more clearly. But what I found to be interesting is that's actually gotten some conservative backlash. So suddenly the Republican Party is concerned about whether or not the information presented on Facebook is being presented with like a liberal bias. I'm wondering what you think about that. Yeah, I think this idea that Facebook as a company was crushed by it. I think we need to separate the staff, the employees, and the management. I think the employees are progressive. If you look at Facebook as a company, they gave more money to Republicans last year than Democrats. So it's a bit of a kind of trick that to think that they are progressive. I mean, it was um, at the Kavanaugh hearings, there was a, one of the top Facebook leadership there supporting Kavanaugh, had a big party for him after the fact. Although, you know, Zuckerberg himself might have liberal views, they're supporting a lot of Republican politicians, you know, basically being indiscriminate in their lobbying. As far as the Republican backlash, I think it's pretty strange because what we've seen largely is it has benefited the right. So I don't really understand. Can you say more about that? Well, I mean, it got Trump elected. He's conservative. I mean, well, he's a Republican. I don't know. He's not traditionally conservative, but he's a Republican. It's not like uh, Facebook algorithms got Hillary elected. Mm. So it's kind of strange to me that they are using this as their kind of rallying cry that they're worried about censorship of Republican views. And I agree with you. And I think, one, I agree that I don't think that there's any evidence that Facebook is surfacing liberal news above conservative news, for instance, beyond personal preference, where depending on what you're personally clicking on, that they will emphasize that more. So that I buy. But what I think is interesting, and this gets back to something you mentioned earlier, is it's almost like the right is picking up on something that's very true, which is only Facebook, this huge monopoly, is controlling what we see. And we, let's say, as conservatives know that the population there tends to be somewhat liberal. So I think they are accurately concerned with the fact that one company is controlling the media that we're consuming in such a powerful way. Right. And I have, I share that concern. I mean, Facebook and Google in 2016, I think accounted for by some estimates up to 90% of the growth in digital advertising that, you know, a lot of people have coined them the digital advertising duopoly. And 
that is digital advertising dollars that every other publication needs to fund its journalism, right? So the fact that every all these papers are closing around the country, it's not because of the internet, like when we first transitioned to the internet, it's because they're not getting the ad dollars. And the reason why they're not getting the ad dollars is because they can't do the targeting that Facebook and Google can do because they're tracking users all across the web. They have a 360 degree view of user activity that allows them to really precisely target you um, with messaging that any one newspaper can't get that data, doesn't have that view. So that's where we're having a big problem with them getting, you know, the funds to be basically taking all the funding of the press and then not having a public sphere because we're getting our content delivered algorithmically. Uh, we're not seeing all the opposing views. We're just seeing what the algorithm thinks we'll, we want to see. And the biggest way to combat poor speech has always been counter speech, right? That's the whole idea of freedom of speech is that the best way to counter something you don't like is to, you know, express an opposing view. But with the algorithms, no one will ever see that opposing view. And, and I think that's really damaging the discourse. Well, and I want to pull out something you mentioned in there. So Facebook has such complete information on people that they can promote the news that they're interested in above and beyond all the other um, sort of media competitors. How do you feel like the European Union's passing of GDPR, so to help protect consumers from how their data is being used, how do you think this affects monopolization? I think if they can get the GDPR right and actually enforce it, it could really open up competition, actually. You know, there was a, this narrative that came out when it first um, was passed where everyone was saying, this is going to entrench their monopolies. And I actually think that was a narrative probably put out by Facebook and Google to their mm-hmm. armies of talking heads that they employ at think tanks and academic institutions. And they really have a like this soft power that they get their messages out through. So for you, because I, I had heard that and I hadn't necessarily thought about it or bought into it, but it sounds like you're saying that GDPR could be effective under the right circumstances. Yeah, I think initially it is a burden for smaller companies and perhaps it would have been smart for them to cater it to the size of the company. However, I heard the reason why they didn't do that was because your data being taken by any company harms you to the same level, regardless if it's a big company or a small company. So in the short term, obviously, it's harder for small companies to comply because they don't have the resources to comply. So in the short term, there may be some merit to that argument. In the long term, if they get it right and actually enforce it, right now it's really not being enforced. I mean, it's just taking time because what's happened was the law was unveiled. Basically, no one's complying. And now a bunch of nonprofit organizations and activists have filed complaints with the local data protection authorities who will then have to do an investigation and come back with a penalty. And the first round of those are supposed to come out actually before the end of 2018. But right now, no one is complying. For those of you who don't know, I'm, I'm sure you can Google it. But yeah, it's a fundamental shift in the way that companies are allowed to store and use consumer data. Um, and it's just a whole different ballgame. In Europe, they recognize that privacy is a human right. And, you know, it's all about protecting that. And you know, to the extent that consumers really are truly informed about what's being collected about them and actually have a real choice to say no, that could definitely help to open up competition. Well, so speaking of GDPR, one of my concerns about the Trump administration is that there is so much mayhem and 
whether or not you believe it's legitimate or illegitimate scandal, that sometimes I get concerned that there are things that we as a country aren't focusing on that would be really smart to focus on and when we might be focusing on under a different administration, even a, a more traditional Republican administration. What aren't we doing from a policy perspective in your view? And you're talking about particularly regarding tech platforms or in general? Yeah, I guess not in general. I guess specifically in regards to either monopolization or tech platforms or maybe net neutrality. Sure. I think regarding tech platforms, we need to start enforcing the antitrust laws. The last major monopolization case was US v. Microsoft, and that was almost 20 years ago now. And the reason why I actually even started focusing on writing about uh, Google, Apple, Facebook, and Amazon was that I saw that every one of those companies was doing conduct very similar to the conduct that Microsoft got in trouble for in that, in that landmark antitrust case. So I said, there's a lot of risk here that these companies are going to be enforced, that they're going to have antitrust enforcement. Well, and, and for those of us who are unfamiliar with the details of that case, what did Microsoft get in trouble for? So Microsoft, if you all will remember, had a monopoly, and it still probably has a pretty good share in the Microsoft operating system. And what it did was uh, there was the browser Netscape, the internet browser Netscape, uh, that was a new company that was getting traction. And um, Microsoft required all the computer manufacturers, if they wanted to have the Microsoft operating system, which they basically had to have in order to sell a computer, they had to pre-install the Internet Explorer uh, browser and not install Netscape. So Microsoft killed Netscape, which is basically what I'm talking about when Google puts its shopping competitor on page four of the search results or Amazon puts its product competitor at the bottom of the search results or gives itself the buy box, which gives itself 90% of sales. So it's the same idea of taking your monopoly in one market and leveraging it into adjacent markets or verticals to make competition in those markets impossible. It yeah. sounds like it's a precise parallel to what maybe Amazon's doing right now. Right. And particularly the Google Android case that was um, recently decided in Europe, where they, Europe fined Google $5 billion. Yeah. Can you walk through what, what they got fined for? Sure. So Google, um, with its market share of the Android operating system, I think it's around 80% worldwide, said to the phone manufacturers, if you want the Android operating system, you have to also take Google Play and these other 33 Google apps, and you have to pre-install those in the phone, and you cannot pre-install any other competitive apps in the phone. So it was a smart business move by Google as they saw that the world was going to mobile, it had its desktop search monopoly, but it needed to make sure that it retained the search monopoly going into mobile. And so other search engines didn't even have a shot at getting into the phone that the world uses, the majority of the world uses, because Google uh, required the phone manufacturers only to take its apps and not allow, say, you know, Microsoft and install a Bing app in an Android phone. Of course, users could still always install competing apps after the fact, but Users just don't tend to do that. If there's already like a map app on your phone, you don't tend to seek out another map app. Yeah, I couldn't believe it. I don't know if you remember when Apple Maps rolled out, but it was just like a decade behind Google Maps and it was auto installed on all the iPhones. And I was shocked to find out that a few years later, something like 80% of iPhone users were using Apple Maps, even though I would argue it was a vastly inferior product. 
just because it was the default. Yeah. And that's what people say when those people who think that Europe got it wrong with the Google Android cases, they say, well, look at what Apple does. So Apple almost benefited by the fact that it made its entire system closed. They don't license their operating system to any phone manufacturers. So that is a counter argument that people make about when they have disagree with uh, Europe's case. However, it's really Android that has the monopoly power, not Apple. I mean, as much as if you're living in Silicon Valley, you might think everybody uses Apple. The worldwide market share is really vastly held by Android. So I'd love to talk about what it looks like to break up monopolies in this way. So I I think back to sort of the big tobacco case, and there was a a somewhat simple solution of we've got one big tobacco company, let's make it, you know, four or 16 companies, and they'll then be forced to compete with one another. But that doesn't make a lot of sense for something like internet search. Like there's not going to be physical locations like Google California versus Google Southeast United States, where you're getting different kinds of results. So what would a more practical solution be to break up a monopoly like? And let's go through each of them. Maybe we could start with Amazon. Well, with Amazon, I think what would make the most sense is that it can't vertically integrate into its platform. So it can be the marketplace, but it can't also sell in the marketplace. A structural solution like that would make the most sense. In that case, you're protecting people who are selling on the platform from unfair competition, but you're not protecting them from their lack of choices in the marketplace. So they they still might have to sell on Amazon because it has such market share. I'm just walking through right. what that does and doesn't fix. Right. Yeah, that really just fixes the issue that I was talking about before regarding Amazon being able to see if any product is selling well on its platform and then copy it and bury the competitor. And giving itself the buy box is another big thing. That's the one, the yellow button that you click And um, anyone that's selling a product that Amazon is also selling has a really hard time getting the buy box so much so that Amazon sellers have told me they just liquidate their product as soon as they see Amazon starting to sell the same product. But yeah, the problem with them having one out of every $2 online is not addressed by that, no. So what about Google? What would it look like to disrupt their monopoly? So I think with Google and Amazon, in that respect, at least, it's a similar, um, if you're looking at Google search, at least, it's the same similar issue to Amazon. You can make them not be allowed to vertically integrate. So, you know, you can't start making Google reviews and then burying Yelp, which is what Yelp is always upset about. Or, and I think this would apply also to Amazon, you create a neutrality standard or a non-discrimination standard similar to what we were trying to do with net neutrality. And that's search. And then Android, um, I think what Europe is trying to achieve with its remedy in the Google Android case is allowing other companies, other competitors to get their apps pre-installed in the Android operating system. So I think that could actually really open up competition if you get your Android phone and there's a different search engine pre-installed or there's a different video service pre-installed or a different map service pre-installed. These companies are all in a lot of different markets, but those are the ones that they have the highest monopoly power in right now. Yeah, and what about something like Facebook? So I feel like I I get what you're saying on sort of creating the rules and then playing the game. And that's what it seems like Amazon and Google are doing in some of these areas. What about something like Facebook where they're not really selling products on their platform? Or are they? Are they just selling attention? Right. They're selling attention to advertisers, right? So what they're selling is advertising. And some of the indications that they have monopoly power with that or it's not real competition is the fact that they keep committing like massive frauds. I don't know if you saw the, or at least there's a complaint, allegedly, there's a huge 
case saying that uh, that came out last week saying that Facebook inflated its uh, video watch times by, by as much as 900% due to the way it was calculating watch times. I think in last year, there were something like six different times that Facebook would come out and say, sorry, we got our metrics wrong. And the advertisers just keep paying. And when you think about it, if the advertisers are paying inflated prices for the advertising, because there's not competition and there's also no transparency in terms of what's actually being served, what's actually being seen, their costs are going to be passed on to consumers, right? Some of the biggest advertisers are companies like Procter & Gamble. To the extent they're paying any kind of monopoly rents to either Facebook or Google for their digital advertising, those inflated costs would get passed on in the form of higher prices to consumers. One of the problems, as I see it, is we're currently trusting these large companies with a lot of power to sort of police themselves. So there is no third party that's telling uh, publishers the real number of views on Facebook. And, and to be fair to Facebook, my understanding is that it's actually rather complicated to to get those numbers right. Basically, it's really easy to fuck it up. <laughs> it's like if someone's on mobile and then they're on desktop and they're not logged in on one, then then it reads it as two separate people, but they're just one person. But where do you land on thinking about third-party oversight for these kinds of companies? Well, I do think that Facebook is about to roll out some sort of auditing and may even be Google also. The publishers and advertisers have demanded some kind of a third-party audit for at least that advertising issue. I believe that's in the works. But the other idea that these companies should police themselves just actually infuriates me. I get really pissed off when I see like members of Congress and watching these hearings over the summer being like, will you help us? Will you take care of this? Can we expect you to fix this? You know? No, that's not how corporations work. Like, I mean, corporations are designed to maximize profits and they have a fiduciary duty to maximize profits. And to ask them to kind of self-regulate, I think is an abdicating your responsibility as a legislator or regulator to protect the American people. It just drives me insane. I think they should be thinking about how Some of their actions may be causing irreparable uh, brand damage and may actually be against their financial interests in the long term and may lead to their consumers abandoning their platforms if they can. So I think it's short-sighted for these companies to not be more focused on fixing the problems. But I also don't agree that we should expect companies to self-regulate. I mean, imagine if we looked at a factory that was like pumping smoke into the air and we said, or pumping pollution into the air and we said, will you self-regulate and fix this, please? Well, and one of the things I've often thought about with the tech companies in particular, so I think right now we're at this interesting point where sort of both everybody on the left and everybody on the right hates these companies for sort of different reasons. Even going back just as short as two years ago, you could think of these companies as being run by sort of benevolent dictators. So I know we've talked a lot about how Facebook is incentivized to just show as much engaging content as possible, even if it's negative, so that they can show more ads. But Mark Zuckerberg really got in trouble earlier, I believe it was this year, by downplaying third-party content to show content from your friends and family, which actually is less engaging overall. I see something like that, wanting to trust Facebook and say like, it's okay, Mark Zuckerberg's a good guy. Like, yeah, I get it. You can't trust most people to run companies well, but, but I think he's trying to do the best he can. And so I think that sentiment, which I believe more than just I believe, um, has bought them a lot of forgiveness that you wouldn't see in other areas of, of business. 
And I wonder if, if we think about it from sort of a benevolent dictator perspective, like when George Washington was the first president of America, it would have been easy to say like, ah, it's fine. He can be our king because he's a good guy. But, but he chose to step aside with the goal being that we, we would want these transitions of power. This is all a very long way to say, would we be much less accepting of these companies and intolerant of their power if these particular men weren't at the helm? Um, it's possible. I mean, I definitely think that they created this persona of being, you know, liberal and progressive and caring about the important issues. And so that did buy them a lot of forgiveness, at least from the left. I don't think there's such a thing as the benevolent dictator. Well, yeah. And that's exactly the fear, right? Is that it's like, it's great that he's maybe been nice for a while, but definitely don't trust a system like that. <laughs> and the reality is like, even if he does try to make a change, like you mentioned of prioritizing friends and family content over other content. The problem at this point is that they're just too much the gatekeeper for the internet's content, right? Like the problem is that everything that they do has huge consequences because they are like the portal to the internet. And so I think the real solution is deconcentration and decentralization. Everything that I care about in terms of democracy and monopolies and power, I think the solution is to decentralize and deconcentrate power. And that was what the internet was supposed to be, right? It was supposed to be decentralized. And that was what was so exciting about it when it was new. And the reason why it became this source of such tremendous innovation, that is really not the case anymore and in the same way. So before we move on to talking about uh, your newest podcast endeavor, is there anything else you feel like we haven't had a chance to cover in the tech monopoly space? I guess back to the point that you were just making about these are good guys. I don't really fault the CEOs of these companies. I don't think these companies are evil companies. I think any company that has this much market share for this long and this much power worldwide is just a dangerous thing and bad for the economy and bad for democracy. And I don't fault the companies because they're doing what they're supposed to do, which is maximize profits. I do think they're being short-sighted. They're not looking at the long-term brand damage and trajectory of what some of their, you know, negative consequences of their pursuit of profits is going to lead to. But I think the biggest problem has really been both antitrust enforcers not stepping in and enforcing a monopolization conduct and also allowing these companies to acquire hundreds and hundreds of upstarts. So nearly every company that could be a competitive threat, all of these companies need to do is just buy them out of existence. I've thought about that too. What do we do about that? So if I, you know, and I've worked in the startup space, like the goal is an acquisition a lot of times. It's not to become the next Facebook. It's to be acquired by Facebook. Like what on earth do we do about that? Right. And I mean, you know, there are people who argue that this is good for innovation, that everyone wants to get bought by these companies. But I think the stronger argument is that as long as the venture capitalists and the entrepreneurship model is really, let's just create some little maybe innovation around the edges of one of these tech giants so that they'll buy us. You're not going to get maximum innovation. You're not going to get the next big thing and you're not going to get competition, right? I mean, the first question that venture capitalists ask a lot of the time is how will you defend against one of these companies? So think of all the innovation that doesn't happen because the tech founder doesn't have a way of explaining how they couldn't just easily get squashed. So in terms of how do we 
stop that. I think the antitrust enforcers need to start looking really hard at acquisitions by tech platforms of every size, not just big companies, but little companies. And I think you look back at a lot of the acquisitions that have happened, they've been pretty misguided. Facebook, Instagram, I think that looking back, that was a mistake to allow that through. I think, you know, you look at a lot of the monopoly power that Google has now up and down the vertical um, stack of the digital advertising ecosystem was all through acquisition, DoubleClick and AdMob, YouTube. Those are all acquisitions. These are the most innovative companies that have come up with all of the innovations. They're just buying the innovations and using it to consolidate their power. So I think there needs to be more robust merger enforcement, especially when the firm that's doing the acquiring is already a dominant firm. I love that that's very specific and it makes a lot of sense. So I'd love to transition to asking you about your newest endeavor. So the last few years, you've been working on the Women Killing It podcast. Can you tell me a little bit about the format of your show? Sure. So I interview really rock star women. I think that almost every woman is a rock star. So it ranges from C-suite executives to women who work part-time and part-time take care of their children. But I interview women who are killing it in their careers, and I try to celebrate their successes as well as creating a playbook for what works for women at work. When I started, it actually was around the time that the news about the gender pay gap was really getting a lot of attention. And most of the reports were blaming women for it, saying things like, well, women don't ask for more, women don't negotiate. And I was getting a little frustrated with that. And I thought, we know that what works for men doesn't always work for women. And one good thing about me being in my... um, 40s at this point was I know a lot of really badass women. And let me ask them, what have they learned that works for them? And and hopefully we can create a playbook that everybody can share. Have you been able to internalize anything you've learned there? Yes. I mean, the crazy thing, I just started it. Like I said, I wanted to do an investigation. I was an uh, investigator as an antitrust enforcer at the New York AG's office. And now I'm an investigative journalist. So for me, it was like an investigation, like what works for women? Let me get that out there. Let me put out a positive message and do this investigation. But I wasn't even thinking about the effect that it was going to have on me and my life and my career. And it's been pretty insane, actually. I mean, (laughs) when I started it uh, like a little over two years ago, I I wasn't really getting the recognition uh, for my work because a lot of my work as an antitrust journalist was behind a paywall and didn't have my name on it. And I was feeling a little frustrated about that. And just by following the advice of the women on my podcast, I've gone to being, you know, actually last week I testified at the Federal Trade Commission. I was actually on the Vanity Fair podcast also last week. I did like 18 speaking engagements last year and I even went to the Milken Institute. My career is in a completely different place than it was. And I really credit it to listening to these inspiring women every week and just doing what they say. What's one tidbit you could share with our audience that has had a big impact on the trajectory of your career? Well, the, one of the biggest themes that came out of it, it's going to sound kind of frou-frou, um, is actually to find your joy is actually the first step in my seven steps to killing an action plan that I created as a result of the podcast, um, where I kind of synthesized all the themes. And by finding your joy, I mean, just like simply finding one thing that you really enjoy and working it into your life as a way to start getting in touch with like your inner self and what really makes you tick. And I I found that everyone on my podcast who had really succeeded was doing something that really made them tick. 
And it's not that you can just say, I love poetry. I'm going to go be a huge success doing poetry, even though it's really hard to make money doing that. It's not that. You have to also look at what the world needs in order to monetize your passion. So it's not as simple as finding your passion, but I do think you really need to have an inward focus to understand what makes you tick, what makes you happy, what excites you, what engages you. Um, and I don't, I'm not talking about news on Facebook. I'm talking about engages you in an exciting way and it puts you into a deep state of flow and things like that so that you can really make your career um, a manifestation of who you are. But just so many of us, especially women, spend all of our lives pleasing everybody else, pleasing our parents, our teachers, our employers, our spouses, our children, taking care of everybody else and pleasing everyone else that we kind of lose sight of who we are and what we want, what makes us tick and what brings us joy. If you get back in touch with that and you use that to direct your career path, you're much more likely to do something that you'll really excel at. And what does that look like for you? Well, you know, getting in touch with why I cared about antitrust, I really didn't have a good sense of like why I did like it and was passionate about it so much. And then making that connection with why I was passionate about women's rights for my whole life, I've been passionate about women's rights, but connecting those two parts of me and realizing that what I really care about is making sure that everybody has a fair shot in this world and that we don't have these oppressive systems that keep some people out and take away um, your opportunity to succeed and really to live the American dream. The American dream is supposed to be, it should be available to all of us in the antitrust context, whether we're a small company or a big company or an entrepreneur in the women's gender equality context, whether we're, you know, a man, a woman, whatever our race, uh, sexual identity is, we need to all have a fair shot at reaching our human potential. That was kind of just getting in touch with what drives me and making sure that that's what I prioritize in my work. So on Innovation for All, we believe that accepting the status quo hurts innovation and people. So accepting the status quo or rejecting the status quo often requires us to look at what we see around us and decide that something about it's not quite right. What's something that you've changed your mind about in the last few years? One thing that's been a big awakening for me over the last few years is actually just how deeply ingrained patriarchy is in everything we do. And like I said, I was a feminist my whole life. So I thought I was on top of this. Like I thought I, I had it down. <laughs> I thought I was my full range of anger that I needed to be. But I've just been, I think the big kind of eye-opening thing that's been happening to me over the last couple of years is just really being aware in how many ways I've actually allowed patriarchy to control me, even though I really thought that I wasn't being controlled at all. I, I thought I was this guy, you know, outspoken feminist who wasn't taking anything, um, but how it just kind of filters into so much of what we do without us even realizing it. Can you name something specific? Oh, I mean, even like the guilt that I feel as a mother, if I've gone to some big conference and something happened when I was gone or the household division of labor that even successful women feel this obligation to do more than their share of it, you know, kind of questioning where all that comes from and thinking that it's really about oppressive power structures. <laughs> I can empathize with all of that. <laughs> What's a view that is widely held maybe by your peers that you're just not totally convinced by? Well, I have to say in the antitrust community, I'm pretty much a part of a, a small group of people who 
have a completely different perspective than the kind of status quo antitrust establishment. So I'm quite a kind of black sheep in the antitrust establishment, I would say. The FTC, the Federal Trade Commission hearing I was just mentioning, uh, as I gave my speech, I was watching a lot of mostly uh, white men in the audience shaking their head against what I was saying, <laughs> like shaking their head no as I gave my speech. The widely held beliefs in the antitrust community are that the market will fix everything. Antitrust enforcers don't need to do anything because it will all work itself out. And if antitrust enforcers try to fix things, they're going to create more problems than they're going to solve. And I just adamantly disagree with all of that. I think we've seen what happens when the antitrust enforcers don't do anything, which has been like the last 30 years, as I mentioned. And I think now we're dealing with the consequences, which I think actually all of these issues we've talked about, including polarization, inequality, democracy, all of these issues are related to the concentration of economic and political power that results when you just allow companies to just merge and merge and merge and get rid of competition in the economy. So Sally, on Innovation for All, we love to talk to guests like yourself who focus on some intersection between either technology, business, entrepreneurship, and how it affects people. So maybe issues of diversity or social impact. Who are two people you think would be interesting for us to speak to on the podcast? Stacy Mitchell. She runs the local Institute for Self-Reliance, and she's an expert on Amazon. And she looks at it from the context of how it affects local economies and political power and local power and things like that. She's, you know, done some really great studies about Amazon. Um, and then I guess I think also Marshall Steinbaum, who I mentioned before about the kind of power over wages. He's done a lot of good studies and good work on looking at monopsony power and, and workers and, and effects on equality. What's a resource you could suggest if someone wanted to learn more about this space? Uh, they can be yours because <laughs> I know you've, you've got some great um, interviews with Vox. And uh, as you mentioned, you were on the Vanity Fair podcast recently. Right. I'd love for people to follow me on Twitter. You know, I'm always sharing thoughts there. I'm at Sally underscore Hubbard. Unfortunately, so much of my writing is behind a paywall, which is sad. And it's not very accessible paywall. A lot of the other writing is quite establishment. So I'm always putting things out on Twitter. And um, I post my stuff also on my website, which is sallyhubbard.com. And is there any other ask you have for the audience? I did just launch another new podcast called Techopoly. Techopoly. And it's brand new, but I'm going to be looking at a lot of these issues in, in more detail on that podcast. Yeah, so those of you who enjoyed today's episode, you can check out Sally on her website, on Twitter, and on her new podcast, Techopoly. Sally Hubbard, thank you so much. Thanks for having me. I hope you're enjoying today's episode. If you are, you can help us out by visiting Innovation for All on iTunes and leaving us a review. See you soon. Oh.